Hello and welcome aboard this island nation, the Maritime Programme. Tom McSweeney here with the programme about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. On this edition, what is the future to be for the country's 16 voluntary community search and rescue boats that often face the toughest job when a tragedy occurs? Most of our work is searching for bodies. 90% of our work is, is unfortunately, yeah, that's, what it, that's what it is, yeah. We'll be looking at the apparent exclusion of these boats from the new National Search and Rescue Plan. And we'll hear positive news about water safety. We've monitored the number of suicide drownings over the last decade and we can see that the trend is decreasing. For instance, in 2007, there were 76 fatal suicide drownings, whilst last year we had 24 this is a very welcome decrease. We'll also hear the strange story of the smooth hammerhead shark, which caused huge media attention when reported to have been seen for the first time on the Irish coastline, but actually seems never to have been in Irish waters. This Island Nation is Ireland's maritime radio programme, a reflective radio show about the sea, coming to you from the studios of CRY 104FM in Yole on the East Cork coastline and bringing together, through the community radio network, the maritime community around Ireland. An essential part of that maritime community are the country's 16 community rescue boats. These are a nationwide independent voluntary group, reflecting the concern of local communities for water safety and administered by Irish Water Safety as a declared resource on seven-day availability to the Coast Guard. But it appears that their position has not been defined within the new Search and Rescue National Plan, according to sources within the Community Boats Group, and they're concerned about their future. To give listeners an insight into what the voluntary boats do, I went to Mallow in North Cork and met volunteers of the Mallow Search and Rescue Unit at their base on the banks of the River Blackwater, whereas Chairman John Wolfe showed me around the building. The unit started around 1982-83. There was a, a drowning here on the river, a little local lad, Lee McAllen. He was only around three years of age and he drowned here on the river. At the time there was no resources there, there was no, no organised unit, nothing like that to go look for him. People were down there in fishing boats and stuff. It went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And uh, out of that is, it came, we decided, look, if this happened again we'd better be a bit a bit better prepared the next time and have something in place and to some that it started that time. There was great support in the community, yeah. there's great support down through the years, always has been and uh, it just progressed in it, we seemed to get busier and busier, we started being called to other places outside of our own town and uh, north and south and uh, great goodwill all together towards it. Throughout the country, not just here in our hometown, our home, in Mallow has been fantastic to us but uh, we have great goodwill all over the country. You have four boats, uh, you have a Land Rover, obviously, 
the training unit here. How did that come to be built? Was it costly and did you don't have to fundraise and do it yourselves? Yeah, the, the unit that were in the shed itself, we started, we got the site here from the local urban district council as they were at the time. They gave us the site and we built on it. We did most of the groundwork ourselves. We were there with rollers and diggers and what have you. I know some of the leads were builders and bits and pieces, but we were able to do a lot of that work. We put it was 23,000 for the shed itself, which sounds like an awful lot of money, but it's very cheap nowadays. As you know, to, to put it up nowadays, would be, we, we wouldn't be able to afford to do it now. The resources you have for search then, they're including, they include sonar, side scan? Yeah, we have a fantastic piece of equipment. It's a CMAX side scan sonar, and it was donated to the unit by the Otuma family from Ballyvorney, whose son Breen drowned unfortunately in the Lee. And uh, we were in that search for a long time for Breen. And when it was all over and Breen was recovered, they decided they'd do some fundraising of their own. They wanted something to commemorate Breen and to keep his legacy alive. And uh, they bought that sonar and the boat that we called, it's named after Breen Otuma. And uh, the day fundraiser was about 45,000 in total for that. How many people in the unit and how often do you meet and train? There's about 25 at the moment in the unit. We'd meet every Tuesday night and we'd train in, not every week, but we would go an extra night a week, maybe on a Thursday night or that. We'd do a second night, maybe training, dive training or boat training in Ballyhass and that kind of thing. But we'd meet every Tuesday night. One of the things I, I gather from talking to you that's important and is a bit different to the Coast Guard units and without being in any way critical in that regard, but you have underwater, below the surface capability, diving in other words. We do, yeah, we have very good subsurface capability. We use the side scan sonar. A side scan will show you images on the bottom of many different things and each, each item that raises a suspicion that it might be what you're looking for has to be checked. So then you need divers, we have to have our own, and we have our own in-house diving. And uh, we, we just check everything. If we see something on the sonar worth checking, we'd put divers on and check it in. Thank God it's been very, very successful so many times. There's a lot of the work searching for bodies. Yeah, it is most of our work is searching for bodies. 90% of our work is, is un unfortunately, yeah, that's, what it, that's what it is, yeah. That must be kind of very stressful. I'm just imagining underwater darkness, not a great amount of visibility, and searching for a body is very, sounds to me very difficult. It can be, yeah. You can, you can have difficult circumstances and difficult conditions, and you know, there's all, everywhere is different. Some places can be exceptionally dark, and you know, you just have to buddy up with the person. We normally dive in pairs, and we'd have good confidence in each other. We'd have good experience built up over the years, and it's only a matter of getting used to it. And would you have called out some at night and darkness, bad weather? Oh, we do, yeah. We'd, we've been called several times in the middle of two, three, four o'clock in the morning, and um, in, in Cork in particular, no, city keys and things like that. Maybe vehicles gone into the water with somebody in them and that. And I mean. The sooner you can get there, the better. The sooner you get the call, the better, because if somebody does come out of a vehicle or goes loose, you know, in some way, you know, 12, 14 hours later, they're gone. And you're going to spend days and days and days looking for them, if not weeks. Whereas if you can get there as soon as possible, you have a great chance of recovering them and putting it to bed once and for all there and then. And your unit is a designated one for call-out by the Coast Guard, so could you be anywhere... 
We could be anywhere. No, we work under the Irish Water Safety Association. There, we, we're with the um, community rescue boats with the Irish Water Safety Association, John Leach and Galway, and that. And they oversee certain aspects of, of our. They, they come do inspections and that there on a yearly basis, and we get for that we get a vetry certificate. We can buy emergency equipment. We can claim the vet back on it because we're involved with them. But uh, we do get call-outs from Coast Guard units and that around the place you know, to, to assist in searches. You know, the Coast Guard will say well, they have a fantastic setup. They're really, really well-equipped, well-trained. But when it comes to subsurface, then that's kind of where we come in. So the voluntary aspect and the community support is extremely important to keep the unit going because there's no other state funding or support. It's entirely your own. Yeah, there's no state funding whatsoever. We do get the vet back on emergency equipment only. We can't get it back on fuel now or things like that. But boats, life jackets, you know, all that kind of equipment, we do get the vet back on. But uh, all the fundraising is done ourselves. We do get a few grants there. We got a bit of lottery funding now, twice, I think we've got it. And um, we get county council grants, you know, they'll be handy enough. But the vast majority has to come through fundraising ourselves or donations. What motivates you to, to, to put so much time in training, updating skills, going on courses, paying for everything yourselves? Why, why do it? I don't really know, Tom, to be honest with you at times. Uh, I suppose it's the satisfaction you get out of it at the end of the day. And it's a great organisation. They're a great bunch of lads here and, and ladies. And in fairness, we all get on so well. John, we have a great bit of camaraderie and... You know, we just enjoy it. Well, you know, it's hard to say you'd enjoy something like that, but we do. We do get on well, and we we have a good setup. We know what we're about, and I suppose we can see the need for it. And a lot of families would bear testament, like the Township the years. They know. They know why we're here. Well, that need is very much, as you say, a family finding a body. When I mean, you're here on the, on the banks of the Blackwater alone, which is a huge a huge catchment area, I suppose. But it's very important for a family to find a body, so they trust you to do that. Yeah, it seems to be, uh, I think it's kind of unique to Ireland in that we will continue searching for a body here for weeks and weeks and weeks if necessary. Other countries, you'd see a body, somebody goes missing two or three days. If they're not found, it's all over. And uh, that's not the case in this country. In fairness, no Coast Guard units, RNLI, the whole lot, they put some effort into recovering somebody. And I suppose you must think there's people standing on the bank, their mother, father, brother, sister, whoever it is that's missing. You would never have closure if you don't recover that person. You'd never have a funeral, you've no grave to go to, you've nothing. Do you know, so it's so important like to try and recover, to do everything you can. I mean, it's not always possible to do it, but the majority of the times you would, yeah. There are about 15 community lifeboats yeah. around the coast. I know there's concern about their future because they don't seem to be included within the new Search and Rescue National Plan. It's important, obviously, then, to keep this community voluntary effort going. Oh, it's very important to keep it going. I mean, there's about 15 around the country. There's probably maybe six or seven that would have a, you know, a subsurface capability, as we call it. There might be one or two more now. I'm not too sure exactly on the numbers. And most of them are just community lifeboats you know, and community rescue and they stick generally to that rescue and lifeboat work, what have you. But uh, it's so important, like because these these are areas that are not serviced by, we'd say other other organisations, 
or if another organisation is on the call and maybe do three or four days and then they're finished, and which is understandable, people have worked and all that, but just then that units like us step in and, you know, and you're there for the long haul and that's it. And finally, the reward really is what you were saying, being able to recover a body for a family in a tragedy. Yeah, it's very rewarding. It's, you know, it's some sense of achievement. And it's not about that either. It's not, it's not about achieving anything or, or some, you know, on that side, it's hard really to say, but, you know, the sense of satisfaction you get out of it. Do you know, everyone there, the divers, the lads in the boats, they all work so hard, like, and to get a result at the end of the day, it's so important to them. Do you know, they'll just keep, they'll just keep going and going until they do get it, and that's it. John Wolfe, chairman of Mallow Search and Rescue Unit, one of the community rescue boats around Ireland and not getting a lot of state support, as you heard there. There are another 28 locations where communities operate rescue and recovery craft that are not a Coast Guard declared resource. The community lifeboats are a big voluntary effort and not to include them in national search and rescue planning would seem an extraordinary oversight, to put it mildly. Remaining on the topic of water safety, John Leach, Chief Executive of Water Safety Ireland, has good news to report. As he joins us from his organisation's headquarters in that lovely part of Galway City near the Spanish Arch, on the Long Walk. I'm not sure whether or not you're aware that we have a number of organisations around our coastline based in our fast-running estuaries where the risk of drowning is very high and who maintain suicide watches in our towns and cities. They include Wexford, Waterford, Cork, Limerick, Galway and Derry. Each year we have a considerable number of drownings by suicide and others which coroner's courts leave as an open verdict and so they become undetermined as there was insufficient evidence to categorically say whether it was accidental or suicide. These organisations were established by volunteers who wanted to make a difference to these people's lives and reduce the number of unnecessary drownings in their communities. We've monitored the number of suicide drownings over the last decade and we can see that the trend is decreasing. For instance, in 2007 there were 76 fatal suicide drownings, whilst last year we had 24. This is a very welcome decrease and we need as a society to recognise the voluntary work that these organisations do to help people in their hour of need. These volunteers complete water safety training and complete the health service executive training called Applied Suicide Intervention Skills, or ASSIST. They are supplied with the necessary personal protective equipment, including life jackets. They normally work in shifts or watches from 10 o'clock at night on through to 3 o'clock in the morning. They normally complete this Thursday, Friday and Saturday nights and other nights as necessary if there are events on or near the water in these towns and cities. What is essential to their success is having necessary communications with the local rescue boats. Some are operated by the Royal National Lifeboat Institute, others by crews of the Community Rescue Boats Ireland and the fire services. Then if a person enters the water, they can be rescued by these well-trained crews that are coordinated by the Coast Guard. If necessary, one of our four search and rescue Sikorsky 92 helicopters can be tasked to ensure a successful rescue or, at worst, a swift recovery with the aid of their height above water 
and thermal imaging cameras to locate the body. On a lighter, happier note, the sport of surf lifesaving is at its peak at present. The lifeguards will no longer be on a daily watch on our beaches, rivers and lakes and will revert to weekend duty only until the 15th of September. This is the end of the official European bathing season. Our lifeguards and lifesavers have been competing throughout the summer at various competitions which culminates in our national senior and masters competitions. The strongest competitors will travel to Riccioni in Italy in two weeks' time to compete at the European Championships. More on that next month, where I have little doubt that Team Ireland will return with some medals. So until next month, enjoy your aquatic activities and always wear a life jacket on or near the water and use your influence to further reduce the number of drownings on our island nation. John Lynch, their Chief Executive of Water Safety Ireland, reporting. Now Justin Marr runs up our maritime news from home and overseas waters. The Castletown Bear Base Salvage Company Atlantic Towage and Marine sent one of their tugs on a 1,200 nautical mile voyage to tow a 7,500 ton cargo ship to safety. The Dutch flagged vessel the Onega Rio was 600 miles southwest of Ireland bound for Fife in Scotland when it lost engine power and was unable to restore it. The 5,000 horsepower tug had to sail for three days to reach the crippled ship and then towed it to Castletown Bear Harbour. There is controversy in Denmark over fish farming after the country's environment minister said it had reached the limit in aquaculture at sea, which would be stopped. Denmark mainly produces rainbow trout in using a system of open fish pens in 19 coastal areas. Exports are valued at 200 million euros a year. Minister Lea Vermeulen has denied accusations that she is destroying the aquaculture industry. She said she was concerned about the aquatic environment and wants to see greener fish farming. Denmark's fish farming sector is smaller than its neighbour Norway, but has been expanding. Evidence recovered from beneath the bitter cold of Canada's Arctic Ocean will shed new light on the final days of the ill-fated expedition of the British polar explorer Sir John Franklin, who disappeared with his crew in 1845. Parks Canada and Inuit researchers have announced the results of a study of the HMS Terra, including groundbreaking new images from within the incredibly well-preserved ship, and the footage is giving scientists new insight into the doomed Franklin expedition. Ryan Harris is the lead archaeologist for Parks Canada. All the doors on the lower deck uh, were, were open, uh, the propeller was in place, uh, the skylights with uh, their uh, glass panes uh, were not boarded over uh, as you might protect them from, uh, from winter conditions. It, it looked like the ship was in operating trim and then somehow, uh, maybe unexpectedly, uh, uh, sank. In 1845, the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror departed England in search of the coveted Northwest Passage. But the famed and closely watched expedition ended in disaster, with all 129 crew members succumbing to the hostile elements of the Arctic. The captain's desk could hold key information about the mission, which might be well preserved due to the cold, deep waters. The only uh, closed door that we encountered uh, during our uh, reconnaissance of the lower deck space 
was in fact the sleeping cabin for Captain Crozier. Might there be documents, written materials uh, that were very private to him, uh, potentially journals, etc. You never know what we might encounter in that uh, one last remaining uh, unaccessed compartment. Parks Canada and Inuit partners hope to return to the wreck next year to continue exploring. And finally, Bantry Bay could be the destination for a new type of cruise liner. The Port of Cork company is the harbour operator and is targeting what are called expedition cruise ships, smaller vessels than the large cruise liners seen in Dublin and Cork ports. This sector is set for major growth, with 40 new ships on order. Bantry had 10 cruise ship calls this year, with 8,000 passengers and 14 are scheduled for next year. The Irish Whale and Dolphin Group is going to Cape Verde on its eighth humpback whale expedition. Funded by the Island Foundation, the two-week mission comes just months after the IWDG confirmed the breeding grounds for humpback whales regularly seen in Irish waters as being near the West African island chain. And as well as research, the group will be training local marine biologists in cetacean survey and research techniques. And there are times on this subject, I must say, when I've been critical of the lack of coverage of the maritime seen by the national media. So when it goes, pardon the pun, overboard about a story, it's a matter of note. One such instance this summer was the news that a new shark species had been seen for the first time in Irish waters, a smooth hammerhead shark. Only it seems the stories may not have been accurate. The Irish Whale and Dolphin Group certainly doesn't think so. Padraig Cooley is sightings officer of the group. One of the big news stories in July was the sighting of a new species of shark for Irish waters. The smooth hammerhead, which was reported by the Marine Institute as having been observed in deep Celtic Sea waters during their West Pass acoustic survey on July 19th. At a glance, this is a fantastic headline story. The sighting of any new species of top predator in Irish waters is indeed significant. Sharks are apex predators, and news editors and web content managers just love a good shark story, especially in high summer, when people are flocking to the beaches. Predictably, the story gained traction on social media, went viral, and before long the story, which started as a casual tweet from the Celtic Explorer, was somehow on its way to becoming a fact. As I read through the press release, flags started popping up all over the page. Had the observers any shark experience? No. Did they have any photographic or video evidence of the specimen? No. Could they offer a reasonable description of any diagnostic feature, some of which are very obvious on a hammerhead shark? No. Had they a carcass? No. I reread the report several times in case I'd missed something, which left me even more baffled, and after an online search for a description of smooth hammerhead sharks, even this was at odds with the report. There was no evidence to support the assertion that what the observer saw was a smooth hammerhead shark, or any of the nine species of hammerhead sharks found globally. So I messaged the Marine Institute Facebook page and radio silence. 
My interest in the story had now gone full circle, and I became far less interested in whether or not this could have been a hammerhead shark, and more interested in the chronology of events that catapulted this sighting of a dorsal fin into a full press release from the Marine Institute heralding this apparent discovery. I knew I was onto something when the only response I got was from their communication manager, tasked no doubt with the damage control. One could ask whether it really matters. We happen to think it does. The Irish Whale and Dolphin Group has been to the fore of marine biological recording over many years and all cetacean sightings and strandings undergo a level of scrutiny before being made available to the public on our website. Many years ago I noticed an anomaly in the increase of reported sightings of killer whales on bank holiday weekends. Could there really be an inshore movement of killer whales that coincided with Irish bank holidays or did this merely reflect more people spending more time on the coast during holiday periods? We leave it to you to decide. But this is where validation is critical, as otherwise we end up with a lot of useless data that has little or no conservation value. Most recorders genuinely appreciate the fact that we take sufficient interest in their records to fact-check them. The word, I believe, is rigour. The rule of thumb is simple enough. The rarer the species, the higher the bar is raised in terms of level of proof. So if you are going to report a species never before seen in Irish waters, then in the absence of photographic evidence, you're going to need at least to make a compelling case that stands up to scrutiny. In this case, what started off as an ill-judged tweet just spiralled out of control and the damage has been done as in the minds of many who saw this story on their Facebook feeds, hammerhead sharks in Irish waters are now a fact, in much the same way as great white sharks and megalodon. The disappointing aspect of this, however, is that the author of this fake news was not a tabloid sub-editor, but our very own state agency responsible for marine research. IWDG make no apology for asking citizen scientists to provide a sound description of what they've seen. We should expect the same of our actual scientists. This is Pori Cooley of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group for This Island Nation. And pulling no punches in that report, it'll be interesting to hear any further developments about the reporter's smooth hammerhead shark. And so we end this edition of This Island Nation, the maritime programme produced at CRY 104FM Yol on the East Cork coastline, with technical supervision by Justin Marr and broadcast on community stations around Ireland, Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City FM, Liffey Sound and Dublin South on Dundalk FM, Athlone Community Radio, Galway on Connemara Radio and Conv- FM, Clare on Radio Corka Boschkeen, Kilkenny on Kilkenny City Radio, Limerick on West Limerick 102 FM, Mayo on Community Radio Castle Bar, Cork City Community Radio, West Cork FM and Community Radio Bear Ireland. And with podcasts on iTunes, Mixcloud, Soundcloud, Spotify and the marinetimes.ie. Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the Maritime Community on Community Radio. And you can contact the programme on email to thisislandnation at gmail.com by phone or text to 0872555197. That's email, thisislandnation at gmail.com, phone or text 0872555197. Until our next programme from me, Tom McSweeney, the usual wish of fair sailing. <laughs>